You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains, to whose elders, past, present, and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Nedelitsky, and today I'm thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Jill Berry. Jill taught for 30 years in six different schools, both state and independent, and was a school principal for the last 10 years of her time in schools. She also taught at GCSE and A-level in the evenings for several years. Since then, Jill has completed a doctorate that explored the transition into headship, wrote a book about it, Making the Leap, Moving from Deputy to Head, and carried out an extensive range of leadership development work. She's also given a TEDx presentation on the subject, Take a Second Look, Bring Out the Best in Yourself and Others. Welcome, Jill. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Great to have you here. So let's start the conversation. You've been a school leader and you've worked with school leaders and you've written and spoken about school leadership. So I guess an obvious place to start is what is it and what is it when it's good? Like how do we know if you see a leader or you see them operating, how do we know when it's when we're doing a good job? It's, it's, it's interesting. Yesterday I was in London doing some training with aspiring senior leaders and one of the things I encourage them to do is to think of the best senior leader they've ever known and to try to distill that down to three key principles what what are the three things about that leader what they did or what they were because leadership is partly about who we are as well as what we do that mean that's why you're thinking of that person now and then we combine all their ideas and I've done that at middle leadership level and headship level and the same kinds of things emerge and they are human qualities obviously what we know is important But I think it's about how we treat people. It's about whether we can lift them, even when we're holding them to account, that we we challenge supportively and constructively. We make people feel better about their capacity to step up and be their professional best. And we support them along the way. So I think it is about relationships, communication. And it's also I know about action, what we do, what we choose not to do. And I think that action needs to be based on strong judgment, which is actually in its turn based on knowledge of our context and our domain and our people, particularly our people. So there's lots there. You said it's a really human quality and you said at the beginning that leadership is who we are as well as what we do. Yes. And quite a bit of what you just talked about is almost it's partly who we are, but it's how we are with others as well in their company and with them and alongside them and how we treat people and that balance you were talking about between lifting and supporting but also challenging and holding accountable. It's not just about making everyone feel fabulous and nice and encouraged but actually that little bit of stretch as well and expecting things of people. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, and and encourage them to expect a lot of themselves and to, to aim high and to believe in themselves really. I think sometimes people see leading a team as a little bit like being an umbrella about protecting and guarding and advocating for them and speaking for them. And that's part of it. But I think we can't just be an umbrella. I think we need to be a filter, really. I think we need to see ourselves as someone who enables and empowers rather than just someone who protects. Because if you only protect your team, what happens when you're not there? And if you're not careful, you're actually encouraging a culture of dependence where they will always look to you for the answers. Actually, leadership is about building capacity and confidence. It's about helping people to grow. And my greatest 
pride comes from people that I have led who have gone on to lead themselves and to do it really well. Because that way you're feeding forward into the world of education. You are protecting future generations of of leaders because schools and colleges all over the world, Deb, they need strong leadership at all levels. I really believe it's crucial. So investing in growing leaders is one of the most important things we do if we want to serve students, pupils, young people. And it is all about what ultimately does that for the students is building the capacity of all of the people that are in their service that the students are in the care of. I was speaking to Alma Harris on this podcast and she says something along the lines of leadership is about others. If it's about yourself, you're doing it wrong. Um, I'm paraphrasing. And that idea about being in the service of other people and you just said investing too, this stuff takes time. Mm. Building people's capacity and helping them to grow themselves is a lot more time intensive than telling them what to do or sending them out of your office with a, a quick solution. Or doing it yourself. You know, I think we all recognise that encouraging other people to do things takes longer and more patience than just sometimes doing it yourself. But it's something leaders have to learn, isn't it? The, the, the converse, I also do get these groups to think about the worst leader they've ever known. You know, no names, but tell me what their key mistakes were. What did they do that they shouldn't have done? Or perhaps what did they fail to do that they really needed to do? And this idea of being ego-driven and self-serving and it's all about them invariably emerges. It's not about us, Deb. It's about the institutions we serve, the people we serve. And I think being able to do that in a way that has a degree of humility and self-doubt. No one expects their leaders to be perfect. They expect us to be honest. But a degree of self-doubt, I strongly believe, makes you a better leader, not a worse one. So pretending that you have all the answers, pretending that you never make mistakes is foolhardy. And that thing of authenticity is coming out there as well because no one gets out of bed and thinks I'm going to I'm going to be terrible at leadership today and people are going to think I'm doing a bad job. No one has that as their aspiration. They want to be a good leader no matter how it is that you're being with people or how people are finding you. So I wonder if there's something around the pressure of leadership as well that makes people feel they need to be or present a certain way uh, that maybe their way of doing it isn't what might be an acceptable way to their context or community. I wonder where some of that stuff comes from. I think there's a there's an irony that to admit sometimes that you're not sure and that you need help um, is a sign of confidence. <laughs> and yet people feel if if I do admit fallibility, people might not follow me. It might damage my credibility. So it takes confidence to admit sometimes that you're not quite sure. But it is about how we work with teams. It's about knowing that you build a team and there will be people in that team who are better at some things than you are. And that shouldn't threaten you because it is about the work of the team. And as a leader, you're coordinating, you're facilitating, you're getting the best from people. And the whole will be greater than the sum of its parts. If you're working as a team rather than simply in a team, you will achieve more. But if you expect to be the one with the answers, with the ideas, and you don't give sufficient credit and encouragement to other people, then that seems to me to be a very short-sighted view of leadership. I'm interested in student leadership too, Deb. You know, we are growing the next generation, aren't we, of, of, of leaders and, and people who have some power, some capacity to make the world a better place. So what are we modelling to the students in our schools and colleges and how are we encouraging their leadership development Um, And I also say to teachers, every teacher is a leader. Sometimes teachers say to me, well, I'm happy in the classroom. I don't want to lead. 
And I say, actually, think about what you're doing with students. You're encouraging, you're scaffolding, you're modelling, you are challenging, holding to account, you're supporting, you're empathising. All those things are leadership behaviours. You are leading. If you don't want to go into a role where you're also leading your peers, your colleagues, that is your choice. But don't let it be because you don't believe you have the, the skills and the strengths. We are all leading. So any investment in leadership, I think it's good for the students. I think it's good for teachers. And it's crucial for those people who go on to lead at middle leadership, senior leadership level, principalship or beyond. In England, obviously, there are lots of groups of organisations with executive principles and overarching CEOs, and, and they all need to develop their skills. We're never the finished article, are we? It's interesting that you talk about teaching as almost an apprenticeship for leading, because sometimes people would say that in schools, people just sort of end up Um, if they're good at their job or they're well-recognised or they play their cards right or whatever it might be, you sort of end up in leadership positions without necessarily the kind of training you might get in another industry. But you're saying to some extent that teaching itself, that service of others, getting the best out of people, working alongside someone where they're at to move them to the next place as you do in a classroom is actually an apprenticeship of sorts in developing your leadership skills and style. I think it is, but I think we do need some training as well. And we certainly need to build our awareness of what good leadership, where you started, what does good leadership look like? What are the bear traps that we want to avoid? What are the mistakes that we've seen leaders make? And what have we learned from that negative example? Because we learn arguably even more from negative models than we do from positive ones. Sometimes positive role models put people off. You know, I couldn't be a leader because I couldn't be like her. I couldn't be, I couldn't do it like him. And I'm saying, no, remember the authenticity. You will be true to yourself, but you will have learned from him and her and various other people along the way. So I, I think we do need some kind of training. We need to encourage, there's a lot of really good stuff that's written about leadership now. You've written some of it for middle leaders. And I think we need to recognise that this is something that we need to be intentional about. I've I've been in the profession a long time. I started my teaching career in 1980. Um, When I became a middle leader, I became a head of department. I don't remember having any leadership training for that role at all. This was back in the late 80s. And I think the The belief then was that if you were a good teacher of your subject, you would be able to lead that subject. And I think I did. And I think I did learn to do it well. But I think there was a lot of trial and error along the way. I do a lot of work with middle leaders now, um, aspiring and serving in schools and for organisations, getting them to think about how they can get the best from their teams, what middle leadership demands of you. And it's tricky. It's tricky because you are a buffer between your team on the one hand and senior leadership on the other hand. But I think thinking about and also thinking about perceptions, when I do these exercises about the best leaders you've known and the mistakes the worst leaders you've known have made, I encourage the people that I'm working with to use that list because we end up with a fairly comprehensive list of what in their experience good looks like and not so good might look like. And I encourage them to use it in a self-awareness exercise. Go through that list. What do you think people would say about you? What would they never say about you? What might they say about you on a good day or a bad day? And then I say, if you're brave enough, give blank copies of that list to some of the people in your team and perhaps someone who leads you and get them to do the same separately, independently, perhaps anonymously if it's your team, and then cross-check those perceptions. So you think you're a good listener. If they don't think you're a good listener, it doesn't matter whether you think you are or not. You need to change your behaviour in some way to show them you're listening. 
And and I always say to people, don't do it just before the end of term when everyone's shattered and do it when people are feeling fresher, but do it and use that evaluation to cross-check how you feel your leadership is going and where you need to adjust and recalibrate. And everybody in your team might need something slightly different from you. One of the things I say, Deb, is that leadership is really simple and it's really complex. It's simple because it's about getting the best from people. It's complex because how you do that can be quite nuanced, can't it? Different people need different things. And I don't think we say enough to the people we lead, what do you need from me? If you're going to be your professional and personal best, what do you need from me? And if there's anything I'm not supplying, if I'm not getting the balance of support and challenge right, I want you to tell me. I will listen. I won't just be defensive. I won't go into denial. I'll try not to take it personally. I'll think about it. And then I want to be a better leader tomorrow. And you can help me. I know it sounds easy and it can be difficult, but I really feel that investing in our own leadership and aiming high and continuing to learn and reflect and not to react defensively and in a knee-jerk way, we can be better. We can all be better tomorrow. And there's a real lesson in there around generating where you can honest feedback. And I think the more hierarchical positional power that you have in an organisation, the harder it is potentially to get honest feedback because of the risks that it potentially people feel that there is in, in giving that unless there's the capacity for it to be anonymous. But also that really powerful question of what do you need from me? And I've asked that sometimes. And a lot of the time people haven't thought about that or they're there going, well, you're the leader, you tell me what you're going to give me. And that's, that's what it will be. But sometimes people will come back and they'll say, I thought about that. And actually what I would really like is X because none of us are mind readers. And if we are in the service of others and we are genuinely asking how we can support someone and we might offer things that come to us, but there might be other things that that people can ask for and we can see to what extent we can offer that. Mm. And, and it's not that people come up with a list of demands to make their lives easier. And, and, and people aren't stupid. They know that not everyone is going to get exactly what they want in life. But sometimes what they want is actually quite modest and it is within your power. But it's about building those relationships. If, if there is quite a, a distant, cold relationship between the leader and the led, then yes, maybe they are not likely to tell you the truth. They may be thinking, I have to tell them what they want to hear. But interestingly, one of the people delivering on the course yesterday was a serving head, and he was talking about the danger of surrounding yourself with people who, who just tell you what they think you want to hear, who just pander to your ego rather than actually helping you to keep on track. You hope people give you feedback politely, calmly, constructively. Um, But actually, you have to build a kind of relationship where people will tell you the truth. And and I think as a a school principal particularly, you need a senior leadership team, you need a, a governing body, as we have in this country, who will be straight with you. Um, Because otherwise, it's quite dangerous. Leaders can can go badly astray if people are just if people are frightened of them really or frightened of their disapproval or the repercussions of of being open um but as i say we're never the finished article you know i i'm 45 years since i walked into the first classroom i think and i am still learning a lot about education about leadership and i love that i find that exciting deb um mm. I I hope we all do to a degree, but I do know that for some change is difficult, criticism can be painful, and sometimes we need to get over ourselves a bit, really. 
And there's something really there about a culture of trust and a culture of leadership in which this is all okay. And there's some porosity between layers because I've been in schools where people have said, well, that's them and this is the us Mm. and there's the line. And there's almost a culture of that this is how we like to operate. And then you have those people who are the umbrellas, Mm. uh, who are the protectors of their teams rather than the conduits or the the filters or sort of leading up and leading down um, and across because I think that idea of, of middle leadership is particularly difficult from the point of view of the identity of middle leaders. There's a lot of research that will say that it's difficult to separate yourself out from being a colleague sometimes, which you kind of have to do sometimes in the leading part, uh, but you still are very much a part of your team, um, but you're not quite a part of the other team. You sort of are a bit, sometimes lunar leaders will say to me, well, it's a bit like being the meat in the sandwich. Yeah. It is. And I think you have to accept that about middle leadership and you have to be able to find strategies to deal with that because it, it's it's how it is, really. It can be particularly difficult, I think, if you're internally promoted to a middle leadership role. So you go from being one of the team to the leader of the team in the same context. Um, mm. I was a I was a head of department. I was head of English. That was my subject. And my next job was head of sixth form, which was a, a, a big pastoral section of the school. So I did both academic and pastoral middle leadership and I think it served me well when I went to be a senior leader and then when I when I went to be a head I think it gave me an understanding of of different types of leadership and I I love being a mid I, well, I loved all my jobs really but I love being a head being a principal more than anything else that was definitely the most joyful the most rewarding um I think probably I worked harder as a head than I'd ever done but I love my school and I a lot of what I did was about promoting my school and representing my school and it was like being a salesperson for a product I really believed in it was it it was a pleasure to do that but I did it for 10 years and I thought actually 10 years in one institution feels like enough for me and it may be enough for the institution it may be 10 years on they need someone with a different skill set and then I've done a number of things since then as you said and I enjoy those too because I think now I have the opportunity to work with lots of people in lots of different schools and colleges and organisations and institutions. And it almost feels as if my capacity to to kind of influence and make a difference and, and support people is broader than it's ever been. So that has been very fulfilling. And I do sometimes look at what heads and principals are facing and thinking, I'm not quite sure I have the energy to do what they're doing now. It's It's tough. But sometimes the joy comes from meeting the challenges, doesn't it? It's not just about the pleasurable stuff. It's about dealing with the difficult stuff and coming out the other side and thinking, well, that was tough, but we survived it. I helped to get us through. That's a lesson for staff, but also for students too, that actually it's not about smoothing everything over and being happy and making things easy all the time, but that sometimes, especially when you can do it collaboratively, but when you work through a problem and you come up with a solution and and um, it's got a great outcome for the people involved and you think well that yeah there's actually the satisfaction that comes out of that and the reward is often more than those things that are just nice. It's a lesson for parents as well Deb and I, I fully understand why parents sometimes just want to protect their children and smooth the pass but actually that's not their job and, and I think responsible parents working with good schools help young people develop the skills and the resilience and the strategies to deal with failure and disappointment and challenges. I always understood pushy parents who were motivated by love for their children, who wanted to to make things better for their children. But I used to say there'll be a day when we're not here and, and your children need to be able to stand independently and to make decisions and to cope with whatever life throws at them. We cannot just smooth the way. 
and your book that's around moving from deputy headship to headship or principalship, the subtitle of that or the front title of that is Making the Leap. Is it a leap, do you think, from deputy to head? And and what does that gap look like, do you think, between what you think you know when you're a deputy and what you dealt what you deal with when you become a principal? The front cover of the book has has a woman leaping from one crag to another. And one or two people have said to me, the only problem with this, Jill, is that that gap isn't wide enough <laughs> really to reflect the reality. I think there's a real paradox here, Deb. I think being a deputy or, or a vice principal is the best possible preparation for being a head or a principal because it gives you a taste. I didn't think I wanted to be a head in the early years of my career. I knew I wanted to be a head when I realised how much I enjoyed it when my head was out of school and I was the single deputy and people looked to me. Much as I loved Mm. the two heads I worked with as a deputy, that was a taste and it was... It was slightly protected. If, if an absolute crisis had arisen, my head would have come back or been contactable. But it gave me a taste and I realised how much I enjoyed it. So being a deputy is a great preparation in that respect, but it is a quite different job. So being a principal or a head is much more strategic. You are kind of one step back from the day-to-day operations. As a deputy, I spent a lot of time just keeping the wheels oiled and, and the ship moving, you know, But actually, as a head, you've got people around who are doing that. And and you do quite a lot of public relations. You do a lot of relationship building within and beyond your organisation. And you don't interfere with the operational. You need to appoint good people to key roles and you support and challenge them. But you trust them to do their job. You don't micromanage. You don't breathe down their neck. The head I know, um, head of Gordonstone in Scotland, which is quite a famous school in the UK, said to me the other day, as a head, only do what only you can do. And I thought that was brilliant. And I wished I'd heard that when I was ahead. So you have to think, what value does it add if I'm the person to do this? Or in actual fact, should it be something that I'm delegating? Should it be a way of growing the leaders who are coming up behind me? I spent a lot of time with parents, families who were looking at the school for possible entry. And the fact that it was the head giving them that time really did weigh very favourably, I think. That wasn't something I thought I should delegate But other things, including very pleasurable things, I thought my deputy needs to have the experience of doing this. So it is a leap. It's a different job. And you need to think this through. And I did the research. um, I I did the doctorate and I wrote my 60,000 academic thesis and got my doctorate. And I was very pleased about that. You know how that feels. Great job, Jill. (laughs) But I wanted to write a book for a professional audience who might not want to read a 60,000 word academic thesis and Making the Leap was that book. And it was about my own journey. It was about what I learned from my six research participants who were all deputies who had already been appointed to headship. And I tracked their progress through the final months of their deputy headship into the early months of their headship. So it was transition as it happened really and it is very much about the transition it's not about being a head or being a deputy it's about making that transition and what that requires of you in terms of your mindset and the development of your skills and your perceptions um and it it was it was a joy to write compared with the thesis which sometimes felt like drawing blood and I'm an English specialist I thought I could write arrogantly um writing for a professional audience was 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 really a joy. It, it poured out. I sat at the laptop and I didn't, I could write 10,000 words in a day when I was writing the book. But it sold really well because, of course, the audience is perpetually regenerating. Came out in 2016. 
people who were looking at headship now wouldn't have read it in 2016, but now is the time. So it's it's interesting to see how the book's been received. But yeah, I like I like the idea of making the leap, but it's a leap that is so well worthwhile, Deb. You've talked quite a bit about that rewarding nature and that joyful nature of headship. And certainly here in Australia, we've got a, a principal wellbeing survey that year on year is done longitudinally and it reports terrible outcomes for heads in terms of uh, stress, physical health, dangers to their physical and mental wellbeing, all kinds of things. And there's not a lot of great press all the time about principalship. Talk to me a bit more about that joyful part, the rewarding part, the why it's absolutely worth it. Why should people who might be thinking, oh, I've seen people do that and I don't think it's for me, why might they be, why might you encourage them to think about the leap? I was very mindful as a head that I wanted to do a good job. I didn't want people to have a distorted impression of what headship was like. I did work hard. There were pressures. There were difficult things to do. I periodically face things I'd never faced before. And I talked to other heads about that. I met a head for breakfast yesterday who'd just become a head. And she's a, a head in a school with a with a large Jewish community. And she said shortly after she took up her post, when things fled up in Israel, she said that was really difficult for her and her community. She said, I would never have anticipated having to deal with something like that as a school leader. Yeah, that's the point. You could prepare for 100 scenarios and in week one, you might face scenario 101. But I think what happens over time, and it is hard when you're new, but you think, well, I've never faced this before, but I face things that I've never faced before, before, and I've survived. I've found a way through. And again, sometimes the joy comes from that. Actually, we got through that and and I helped lead the organisation through it. I felt as a head I needed people to see that that side of it as well. So they didn't just see me as exhausted and stressed and frowning. They saw me getting a lot of satisfaction and reward from the job that I did. So I think we need to think about that. We need to think about how we prepare heads. We need to think about how we support them. Every head, every principal, I think, needs a coach, stroke mentor, I I do quite a bit of coaching and mentoring, I have done. And often I start during that lead-in period between a head being appointed and actually taking up the role and then carry on into their first years. I think actually heads and principals need coaches and mentors throughout their career. I don't think that need ever goes goes away. So someone who's independent of the organisation in which you work and the body that employs you, who will understand and listen, ask questions, get you to talk it through. Often we know what we should do, but we need that sounding board. We need someone that will listen to us. When I've coached and mentored heads and we've had sessions, I always send them a bullet point summary of what we discussed and what they decided and maybe sometimes useful references or things to read or people to talk to. And I say keep those bullet points because at some point in the future on a difficult day, it might help to look back those bullet points and just remind yourself, actually, that was really exercising me at that stage. But I've moved past it now. So any way of reassuring yourself that you are taking steps forward, they may be modest. And sometimes you may feel you've taken a step backwards, but make sure that you give yourself credit. Think what you are proud of, where you have made progress, how your institution has has moved on since you arrived. And yes, it's difficult. And it's not for everyone. I'm not naive. I know some people don't have that capacity to to bounce back from adversity. I, I know I was a more resilient head in year 10 than I was in year one and two, because my capacity to recover 
speed it up. You know, I'd be walking into mm. school. I lived around the corner from school and I would find myself thinking yesterday that was really on my mind. Today I feel okay about it. I've processed it. I'm not hugging the anxiety to myself, finding a way of getting it into perspective and allowing me to go on because today is going to bring a different challenge and, and recognising that you will get things wrong sometimes and you have to apologise and learn. Steve Mumby, who's one of the best leaders I've ever worked with, he used to be the, the, the chief executive of the National College for School Leadership in England. You know, he says we just we're all imperfect. We need to accept that. We need to embrace it. But we need to learn. And we need to just resolve to do a little better tomorrow. So don't beat yourself up when you get it wrong. But don't make the same mistakes over and over again, because that suggests you're not really evaluating, reflecting, learning, trying to do better. Um, I don't know whether this is any comfort to people. I think if you're facing a real crisis, it's hard. But you're not alone. You're never alone. Mm. You people say headship was lonely. I didn't find it lonely. I I had a good governing body who appointed me and had faith in me. I used to find governing body meetings quite energising. I mean, they asked me difficult questions sometimes, but it was my job to have good answers. Um, I had a great senior team. I had a wonderful PA who had worked for two heads before me and she worked for my successor and she knew a lot and she was bold. She'd tell me if she thought I was wrong and she was brilliant. I've got a husband who deserves to be sanctified upon his death. I've got a my team. <laughs> friends and family. So you're not alone. And I think knowing who to talk to, when to ask for help, who to ask for help, when to send up a flare is really important. And some of these things you probably only learn from experience. With experience and growing confidence and building relationships, you know, you have, if you think about your parent body, you build those relationships over time and you sometimes amass credits that you can then use, trade in if things get tricky. You don't have that when you're new, but when you're new, you have the honeymoon period where everyone's trying to impress you and get on your good side. So you make the most of that. And I think, you know, if you don't enjoy the honeymoon, it doesn't bode well for the marriage. So make the most of that. You do win people's respect, but you do that by doing a good job, showing that you care um, and showing that you're learning. It's so worthwhile, I think. And and I feel it's still worthwhile, despite current challenges. And you sort of talked about the deputy ship as that. It's quite operational often. Uh, you're in the you're in the weeds or in the operations or in the cogs of the machine. And then you talked about the sort of strategic balcony view of the headship, but also really that you're in the humanity of your community. You're in the very complex, very like the, you know, the love and the pain and the care and the complexity of young people and their families and staff members and their families. And you're kind of in this network of community and you're an important person for them. And so that sense of relationship and community um, is really key in that headship role. It is. And I think if you're ahead with senior leaders who have aspirations to hedge you or maybe they don't have aspirations but you can see that they have the capacity to do that you need people to say sometimes you have strengths and potential that you're not actually recognizing in yourself you need to start to help them develop their understanding of the strategic get them involved with the governing body give them some of the jobs that that, that you have I, I started when the um the girls reached the the final year of their education it's the upper six, year 13 here. And, and generally in the school where I was head, most of them would go on to university. So we would write their reference for, and it was an idea I pinched from somebody else. Every good idea I've ever had, Deb, I've pinched from someone. 
um, who said, I sit down and I read those references to each individual girl before they're sent. And it's a brilliant experience for them and for me because it's a wonderful summary of who they are, what they've achieved. And it's good to be open about it and to read this reference and say, is that accurate? Is there anything we've missed? You know, how do you feel about that? And I started to do that. And it was just such a wonderful final thing to do with these girls because it was a girls school. When I was out of school and my deputy did it, because I said, I don't want to hold up the process. You know, those references need to be sent off. So I'm out of school, you do it. When I came back, she said, I just loved that so much. And I said, I need to get you to do it more. I mustn't hug to myself the best jobs. And I Mm. mustn't delegate to senior leaders the worst jobs. You, You really have to think about getting that balance. But if you think you have senior leaders who will one day be heads, you need to make sure they see the joy and not just the pressure. And you need to help them have self-belief that they will cope with the pressure, but they will need to keep learning and and reflecting. And you talked about Steve Mumby's imperfect leadership, and you said earlier that, you know, that idea that we all know, which is that we can always improve, no matter how good we are, no matter how experienced we are, we can always improve. And as our context changes or situations change or situation 1,035 and a half comes along, (laughs) uh, we need to do things differently. But I think that's one thing that I think can be hard as well because it's never finished. You're never the perfect leader. There's not often a perfect solution. It's very easy, I think, to be on this constant improvement cycle for yourself and your school and not actually stop and realise, oh, there there are things here to celebrate, mm. um, whether it's in your leadership or in your school or because there's always something you can be doing better no matter where you're at or how long you've been doing it. There is, there is. And I think two things, really. Dylan William famous, famously said at a, an SSAT conference in, in England once that every teacher can improve, not because they're not good enough, but because we're all capable of being better. Now, some people see that and say, well, yeah, that's obvious. And actually, it's quite inspiring because we have never cracked it. Other people feel quite overwhelmed by that idea. Whatever I do, I'm never going to be good enough. And I think as a leader, I quite often use that phrase because I say, how does that make you feel? And generally, if people in a leadership position, they say, actually, it makes me feel quite excited. This idea that there's more we can learn, more we can do. They write, think about the people in your team. How How might they feel? Some of them won't feel that, especially if it's the end of term and they're tired or, or there are difficult things happening in their own lives or whatever it might be. Some people can feel ground down by that. And you need to be able to see that perspective and think, how can I help them feel better about their capacity to be better? And I think that's especially true when you're having those challenging conversations, when you're holding people to account. You do not want them to come out of that conversation feeling worse about themselves. You want them to come out of that conversation feeling better know that they're supported, you're building on the positives, you're helping them through, they're not on their own. And one of the things I read about when I was doing my doctoral study was that the the whole, the idea of appreciative inquiry, this idea that if we want to improve, often we will get further if we try to recognise the bright spots, what's working well, think about why it's working well, and how we can take that lesson and apply it in a slightly different context to raise the bar. And I, I use that all the time. I use it with leaders and say, how often do you start a meeting of your team and say, right, what are the bright spots? What's gone well this week? What are we proud of? Where are we making progress? It makes people feel better, but it's not just about that. It's about saying, OK, let's just unpick that a little bit. 
where's the learning and how can we use that learning? So it's a much more, it's a credit model of improvement rather than a deficit model. Too often we just fixate on what's broken and what frustrates us and how can we repair it? We need to do that too. But starting with the bright spots can take us further. So I think it's just, and it's good to have high aspirations, but it's not good to be constantly self-critical and beat yourself up because you're not perfect. I mean, perfection is so unhealthy as a concept, isn't it? And people don't expect us to be perfect. I found that as a leader. No one expects me to get it right all the time, but they expect me to be able to say, whoa, I don't think that was a good call. If I could live through yesterday again, I'd do things differently. Um, And I'm sorry, but I'll try harder. I'll do better. I think we need to be kind to ourselves. We certainly need to be kind to each other. I mean, teachers are quite a self-critical and generally critical bunch. um, And we need to keep that in check because, you know, everybody's fighting their own battles, aren't they? Everybody meets difficulties. It's that emotional intelligence, that humanity, again, that compassion and empathy. I don't think if you don't have that, and I do think you can develop it, I think you can strengthen it, but it may be that leadership isn't for you because you don't want to be that Harry Potter dementor who sucks out people's soul. You want to be someone who actually builds people up. You, you know people like that, Deb. I can tell by the way you're laughing. But people who <laughs> look for the bright spots, be kind to yourself and others, and don't be the dementor. This is these are the important life lessons from they are from this conversation. Yeah. Well, Jill, we're coming to the end of our time together, and so I'm going to move us to the final five questions, which I call the enlightening round. So we're ch- shifting gears a little bit because I feel like that conversation just we could just could have kept snowballing it down the hill. But we'll shift gears for a second, and and the first question I've got for you is. What is something unexpected that many people might not know about you? So I've written a lot about education. I have an education blog. I wrote Making the Leap. I've written chapters for other books. I've I've done lots of education writing. But because I'm an English teacher, maybe, and I read a lot of fiction, I always wanted to know whether I could write fiction. And actually, I started in the autumn of 2019. I went to a, a Women Ed conference um, in, in England, in Sheffield. And Women Ed is a grassroots organisation of people supporting women in education. And at the end of those conferences, they always ask us to make a pledge, a commitment to ourselves. And you type it into your phone using the Menti app, and it goes up on this huge screen. Steve Mumby, actually, in Imperfect Leadership, says if you make a commitment to yourself, you're far more likely to see it through if you share it with people. So making a commitment that everyone sees on that screen is, is pretty much owning it. And my commitment was I will try to write a novel next year. Um, and a few people said to me afterwards, why did you say try, Jill? Why didn't you say I will write a novel? And I said, I don't know whether I can. It's, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. And I did start trying. So that was October, November 2019. And then, of course, in 2020, the world changed and the pandemic arrived and we went into lockdown. And I had a lot more time. I, I carried on doing quite a bit of online professional work, but I did have more time. So I wrote three short novels and they came out um in spring 2022 so that's what people might not know about me that in addition to everything else I started writing fiction and I'm really proud of them Deb and and I think 
a lot of women, particularly in my experience, women of a certain age were very creative in lockdown. I have friends who were painting and felting and knitting and crocheting, which is a skill I thought died out with my grandmother. And I was writing. I think it was one of the positive things. I just had the time and the headspace mm. and I enjoyed being creative. So people may not know that about me, but Jill Berry. Novelist. Published novelist. That's fantastic. What a great thing to have been able to do. And, and as you say, to have the time and space to, to allow that to flourish. I wonder whether it would have happened had we not had COVID. And how about something that's currently on your desk? Well, that's related because the the three novels I wrote were short. Um, They're about sort of 55,000 words. And what I didn't realise when I wrote them is that publishers expect novels these days to be between 80 and 120,000 words. I mean, I do worry that everything's getting longer. Films are getting longer. Series are getting longer. Novels are certainly getting longer. But I thought, I wonder whether I can write something that's longer. I've written a fourth novel, which was based in the pandemic. And that was a really interesting research experience to go through my diaries, to go through what was online and remind myself of the progress of the pandemic in the UK. So it's about the family of four navigating COVID in the UK, Mm -hmm. teenage girl and boy and their parents it's about the family it's about what happened during the pandemic in England so that is on my desk because I'm working on the second draft of it and I'm sending it out to a small number of readers and asking for feedback so I can improve it so that at the moment is 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 looming large in my head (laughs) Mm, wow and that's certainly I think academic writing but also I imagine fiction writing asking for honest feedback you really need honest feedback to make it better but Uh, it can also sting a little bit. When I wrote Making the Leap, a lot of it is about my headship. And so it's about me. But actually, fiction is so personal, Deb. You put so much of yourself in it. So if people don't like it, it can be quite hard not to feel hurt by that. But you need people to tell you the truth. You're not going to make it better if people just pander to your vanity. I did a brilliant interview with Amy Edmondson, who's Mm -hmm. a Harvard professor, who's written a book called Right Kind of Wrong about different types of mistakes and how we should learn from them. And she, and she was fantastic, really enjoyed talking to her. Um, but she was quoting the Viktor Frankl thing about between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space lies our power and freedom to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and freedom. And I think about that a lot. So when you do get feedback and it, it might smart a bit think you know that's the stimulus my my response needs to be a little bit more thoughtful and considered rather than just automatic automatic defense or denial or or pain that then stops me processing and learning and moving forward so I I feel very strongly about that the 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 book's called 18 months because it charts 18 months Mm. from March 2020 to August 2021 when we thought we were actually through it and we weren't most of us And you've mentioned quite a few people in this conversation, but who is someone that inspires you in the work that you do? I can't really pin it down to one person or even a small number of people, but it made me think about the world of Twitter. I have to call it Twitter. I can't call it X. I started using Twitter, educational Twitter. I, I only tweet about education in 2011 after I'd finished my headship. And it's enriched my life so much in terms of my network. So there are so many people that I have connected with through the world of Twitter and spin-off events that have really enriched and made my network so much more diverse. And I've learned such a lot. There are so many inspiring people out there. 
it, internationally, it's enriched it. It's extended that range. So in terms of who inspires me, I would say people inspire me all the time. And they are often people that I've not met face to face like you. Yes, well, we met on Twitter and this is the first time yeah. we've had an actual conversation, but we've been connected for years. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and the whole world of Twitter has given me opportunities and experiences, things that I wouldn't have had. Women Ed would not have developed without Twitter and that's been very important in my, in my life. So rather than an individual or a group of individuals, the whole Edu Twitter community I find inspiring and I constantly encourage people to look at it, their educators, I think judiciously used, it will save you time. It's like the best staff room in the world. It's generous. There are negative elements, but there are ways you can protect yourself and control that. So I find that inspiring. And Vivian Porritt, who is one of the founders of Women Ed, um, she was one of my first podcast guests as well. All right. And Dylan Williams has been on here as well. So Steve, I haven't had on. Steve Mumby, I might have to invite him next. Oh, you must. You must. Oh, he is fantastic. And you mentioned Alma Harris. I'm a huge Alma Harris fan. What's one thing you've got coming up that you're excited about? This this ties in because it's a Women Ed event in Northern Ireland in Belfast on the 2nd of March. And this is my third attempt to get to Northern Ireland to speak. The first time I was due to speak at a conference and it was February 2020 and, and the organiser was sure it was going to go ahead. But at the last minute, the hotel said in the light of, of what was happening with COVID, they couldn't host it. So, so I didn't go. Um, the second time I was due to speak at a Women Ed event in September of last year, but I had two knee replacements last year and one was in September, one was in December and I couldn't fly. So I had to cancel it. And then um, the Women Ed group invited me to speak at their conference on the 2nd of March. And I said, finally, finally, I'm going to get to Belfast. And then a couple of weeks ago, our house flooded. <laughs> So we are in absolute chaos here, I have to say. I'm upstairs where it's warm and dry, but downstairs is just such a mess. Gosh. And I thought, can I, can I go? And I thought, I've got to go, I've got to go. So I am really looking forward to going to Belfast on the 2nd of March to talk about leadership, to talk about getting the job you dream of, what you can do in order to be professionally successful in education. And that's and because it's the third time and I am so so looking forward to it. So yeah, that was my answer to that question. Excellent. And finally, if you were to distill your thinking about education to its essence, what is one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with? It follows on from everything we've been talking about, Deb, but it is about how important it is that we work to get leadership right. Middle leadership, senior leadership, headship, principalship, executive leadership. Because I think when people are disillusioned with teaching, Often it isn't actually teaching and it isn't working with young people. It's because they're not well led at whatever level. So I absolutely believe that we need to work to support leaders, to help prepare leaders, um, to encourage leaders to see that they are constantly learning and growing and developing. If people do feel disillusioned with teaching, if anyone Perhaps if you're disillusioned with teaching, you won't be listening to education podcasts. But I would say if you know someone in this position, encourage them to try a change of school first, maybe a change of phase. I know people who've gone from secondary to primary or further education or higher education or a change of sector. So independent 
state maintained or a change of country. I know people who've gone overseas to, to work in schools and colleges who have completely rediscovered their mojo. But usually they are happier because they move into an environment where, where they are better led. So can we really invest in leadership in order all to be the best leaders we can be and to get the best from the people that we work with and then from the students in our schools. That's a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, Jill, for joining me today on the Edu Salon. It's been a huge pleasure, Deb, and so great to meet you, even on screen. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network. By giving this podcast a rating or review and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.